0: Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as your Son entered the gates of Jerusalem as a King, so we ask that you use the words of today's sermon to send the Holy Spirit to enter our hearts and rule them with faith that gives all glory to you and your Son, who boldly entered Jerusalem so that he could procure salvation for us. Amen. It is Palm Sunday, and yet something seems so strange. Thanks to the coronavirus, the church remains empty. Probably for the first time in my life, I will not hear people singing those songs of Hosanna. We will not have the imagery of the people laying down palm branches. Well, when you think about it, Palm Sunday, we celebrate when Jesus entered Jerusalem and people thought he was coming to establish his kingdom, and he was. It was just a different kind of kingdom. And there were some odd things that they should have picked up on. Instead of riding in on a huge war horse, he came in riding on a colt of a donkey, which is not a majestic animal for war. Instead of a glorious saddle all embroidered up and everything, he uses some people's cloaks that he's sitting on top of. Instead of a red carpet laid out for him, palm branches are cut from trees. Instead of coming in with legions of armies marching behind him, He has 12 disciples, and He knows one of them on Monday, Thursday, just a few days away, is going to betray Him. The people who cry out to Him the victory song, Hosanna, which is Save Us Please, on Friday morning, many of them will be shouting out, Crucify! in hatred. Something is different, and in our sermon today, we see that our Savior rides gloriously into Jerusalem, but we're going to continue the irony themes that we have been covering over our midweek services these last few weeks and we're going to see that there's irony that he's greeted as a king but comes as a servant and irony that his service wins his majesty our text for our sermon is philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 indeed let this attitude be in you which was also in christ jesus Though he was by nature God, he did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed, but he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant. When he was born in human likeness and his appearance was like that of any other man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of our Lord. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians here, points out Christ's service and his humbleness. But to understand why he does so, we must look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, which tell us, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being united in spirit and having one mind. Do nothing of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility consider one another better than yourselves. Let each of you look carefully not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Christ is held up as the example, and he's really the empowerment for us as to how we serve each other. That's not natural for us, is it? Our Savior rides gloriously into Jerusalem, but there's an irony. He's greeted as a king, but he actually comes as a servant. Allow me to use my own translation of the inspired Greek language in verses five through eight, which is not the smoothest English translation, but brings out some of the word pictures that are there in the original language. In fact, let this continue being the way of thinking in you guys, which was also in Christ Jesus, who continually exists in the form of God did not consider his being equal to God something to be greedily grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, having taken on the form of a servant, having become in the likeness of men, and having been found in respect to his outward appearance as a man. He lowered himself so that he became obedient to the point of death, and so to the point of death of a cross. Now there's a lot that's said here, and the Apostle Paul walks a very careful line as we see Christ, who is the king of all creation, comes into Jerusalem as a servant. The apostle Paul here uses very careful and precise language so that he never denies the deity of Jesus Christ. A form is what you see on the outside. So for example, we could make a robot that looks just like you. We could come up with synthetic skin so that it could be confused for you, but without your brain, without your internal parts, without your thinking, that's just an imitation. It only looks like you on the outside. Jesus from the get-go is always God. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses in the Greek language the durative tense, who continually exists in the form of God. He is God from the inside and outside. However, when he takes on his humanity, he hides all of the external glory of being God. Jesus Christ is always God. He's not somebody who proved himself so worthy that God adopted him to become God. No, he always is God, always was and always will be. And yet we're told he did not consider his being equal to God something to be greedily grasped. Many translate this in different ways. The Greek noun that's used here is something that is violently taken. In fact, it's a word for robbery. When I violently take your wallet from you at gunpoint or something like that. Now, to understand what Paul is saying, we have to understand the way we sin. See, we're not even equal to God. We're below God. We're his creatures. And yet we're not even happy to violently take God's glory and be our own. We actually place ourselves above God and tell God how to be God, tell God how to serve us. How dare we? We are not God. We're not equal to God. We are creation. We are fallen creation. But Jesus, unlike so many of the horrible royalty you hear about in past history, who were royalty and they expected to be treated as royalty, they were kings and queens, yet their service as king and queens came after their subjects subjected themselves to their royalty. Jesus never demanded, give me the glory that's owed to God. Instead, he's born in a barn. He's not even born in a royal palace a descendant of David, but born to people who were pretty much in poverty, one step above being slaves themselves. Jesus did this to serve you and I. And so we're told in verse 7, not only did he not reach out and demand that the glory of his godhood be seen, that people bow down and worship him and pamper him, we're told in verse 7, rather, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his godly glory, his godly majesty. You don't see the glory of God as Mary has to change a baby's diaper there whose crib is a cattle feed trough. You don't see the glory of God as he allows himself to be hit and spit upon, do you? He could have used that glory. He could have called on legions of angels. He did not. He emptied himself, having taken on the form of a servant. He was not born of royalty so that he could redeem all mankind. He lived his life so that he could credit you and I with his perfect righteousness. He subjected himself to temptations you and I would fall to so that he could credit you and I with his perfect holiness. Having become in the likeness of men, the Apostle Paul uses very careful wording here. He's not saying that Jesus merely looked like a man. He's saying, when you look at him, you see a man, you see the glory of his Godhood hidden because he is the God-man. And we're told, and having been found in respect to his outward appearance as a man. Again, he's not just a man, he's the God-man, but he is, in fact, a man. And why does he do all this? Verse eight says, he lowered himself so that he became obedient to the point of death, and so to the point of death of a cross. One of the worst torture devices ever invented by human beings. There's an irony as he comes through the front gates of Jerusalem. The crowd thinks the king has come to his capital city, and Jerusalem is a picture of the invisible church. But he's going to come out Good Friday out the other side, out the back with the cross on his back. Irony that he's greeted as a king, but he comes as a servant. And the greatest service he performs is not just living his life perfectly for you and I as a human being, depriving himself of all the pamper and, and pomp and display of royalty that his godness, that his deity deserves. Instead, he comes out to carry our sins on his back, to have them placed upon his shoulders as he hangs on the cross. Yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ came to Jerusalem to win a victory, to win the true capital city, the invisible church. He wins that victory not with the pomp of soldiers and marching boots on the ground and swords and shields. He wins it by carrying our sins upon his back on the cross. So we see our Savior rides gloriously into Jerusalem. There's an irony that he's greeted as a king, but he comes as a servant. But the second irony we want to discuss is the irony that his service wins his majesty, wins his kingdom. See, those who were supposed to point to him, those who were supposed to serve him, they were given, in earthly terms, glorious positions. Think of the chief priests and and the position that they had, but their position became way more important to them than the function of their office, which was to point to him and say, there he is, there's the Messiah whom the Old Testament prophesied. The Pharisees, who were so careful to make sure they were so clean, they did it for their own ego trip. Look at how righteous I am. And they resented the fact that Jesus Christ, true God and true man had come and said, your acts of the law don't save you. In fact, your acts of the law are filthy rags before God. They used filthy rags as toilet paper. Instead he says, what saves you is my service. And so they plot his murder and he ends up on the cross. But we're told the result of all this, verse nine, For this very reason, also God highly exalted him and graciously gave to him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee of heavenly beings and of earthly beings and those under the earth should bow down, and every tongue should openly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, resulting in the glory of God the Father. So here it is, Jesus, whose true God does not graft to his godhood, to his godly glory. Instead, he takes on the form of a servant. But there's a wonderful comfort for us that God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, then exalts him, lifts him back up to the throne from which he descended to lift us up to save us. His service wins his majesty. And it's a comfort for you and I. For if he had not done all the work to pay for your sins, to win you into his kingdom, to make you his child, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit would not have raised him. They would not have restored his godly throne to him. He would have had to stay down and do more work. This is tremendous comfort for you and I. Now, the name Jesus that every knee is going to bow and confess. Jesus was his name from the Hebrew name Yahshua, which we translate in English as Joshua, means Savior. Now, the name Joshua was pretty common among the Jews of Jesus' time. To his parents, Jesus would be like my parents calling me by my first name, or like you referring to your friends as Bill or Mac or Buddy. Although his name Jesus always hid behind it that he is the Savior, he has now done the work of being Savior. He had set aside the majesty of his deity, but the Holy Spirit and the Father restored it to him after he has won you. So yes, Now, while he was hiding his Godhood, people didn't always bow down to him, although sometimes they did. Now, when faced with him, people bend their knee. This happens in one of two ways. It either happens in this life, when his Holy Spirit enters your heart through the life-saving word that Jesus is true God and true man, that he has served you by saving you, and now he rules over all creation for you to bring you to and keep you in your salvation. That's all part of his majesty. When he converts you, then you truly bow your knee, and that's to worship him, and you confess, that's to admit what you're worshiping, that he is true God and true Lord. But it also will happen on judgment day, when even those who hated him and despised him, they may be in hell right now, they will be reunited with their bodies. Heaven will not be theirs. They will end up back in hell, but they will say, True God there. I resented him, I hated him, or I was plainly indifferent to him, which is just as good as hating him. And yet I have to admit, that is the God-man. True God who became true man. He did everything to save me short of forcing me to love him, and I hated him. I was indifferent. The most precious jewel of the world, I didn't care. But on the last day, every knee will bow in worship and every tongue will confess. You've often heard me say we have to pay attention to the Greek prepositions. And the Greek preposition used here is one, into, ice, that is the Greek preposition, the glory of God the Father. That's the goal that is reached so we can translate that resulting. And it's very important for us to remember that. We often hear people today say that all religions are working for the same goal. And there's already a problem there because if you're a true Christian, you recognize Christ served you. He worked your salvation. You receive it. But, people also think then that it doesn't matter what God you worship. If somebody does not see Jesus Christ as true God and true Lord, they do not glorify the Father either. Here, God who hides his deity to serve humanity by taking on humanity, after he has died and rose, is restored to his majesty because he did all the work of saving us. And so there's an irony that his service wins his majesty, maybe it's best to say restores his majesty, and as the result of that you have comfort, his Majesty's restored, he who purchased and won you, as I've already said, is now sitting on his heavenly throne, ruling behind the scenes, it's still hidden, it will not be completely revealed until judgment day, but he is there on his throne, ruling behind the scenes to bring you to and keep you in your faith. Our Savior rides gloriously into Jerusalem. His entry was triumphant, but it was strange. Hints were given then and there that he was not coming with the glory of an earthly king. There was more. We see an irony that he's greeted as a king, but comes as a servant so that he can save you. Irony that his service wins or restores his majesty. And with all of his godly majesty, he's ruling to keep you in the kingdom that his service won for you. Amen. Today we would have sung one of my favorite hymns, Lift Up Your Heads, You Mighty Gates. Let me conclude our sermon with verse 4 of that hymn. Fling wide the portals of your heart, Make it a temple set apart, From earthly use for heaven's employ, Adorned with prayer and love and joy, So shall your sovereign enter in, And new and nobler life begin. To God alone be praise for word and deed and grace. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, while we trying to be good stewards and prevent the spread of the coronavirus are practicing social distancing, we will not be able to gather in crowds and sing the great hosannas, which translates to save us please. We thank you that your saving us did not depend on us gathering together, but your humbling yourself and taking on our humanity and then your resurrection. Lord, many people turn to the government to solve their problems. Many people resent the government when it can't resolve their problems. We turn on each other and we play the blame game. We ask you, Heavenly Father, as you are hidden behind the work that you use in natural causes and human beings to use this coronavirus to let people see your hidden glory, let them see your providing hand, let them be able to see even your acts of love behind something that seems so harsh. Calm the concerns and the panic of our nation. Help us see that you have raised your son up to his eternal glory again and that he is ruling from the throne even using the coronavirus for his plans to bring us to and to keep us in salvation. Help us look to you and see you working behind nature. Help us turn to you and see the opportunities to share the comfort that only your life-saving word can give but let us all trust in you and cling to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.